Ian, are you fucking serious right now? So for the second week in a row, we're kind of going to scrape this super pre-proto-punk kind of film from the American society. We hit some local boys last week that were like, so, you know, some Seattle boys for, you know, our own personal taste. And if you hadn't heard of them, I mean, you know, we got to get our local boys out there. Yeah, exactly. Because we got to make sure. I mean, Nirvana was awesome. (laughs) God damn it. Yeah. But uh, this week, we're going to jump to the other side of the country, and we're going to hit a little bit out of the Motor City. Oh, yeah. In fact, these guys would take their name from Motor City. And the number of band members they had. That's true. And there was five of them. As far as I'm aware, because that's how many is on the album, Motor City 5. So, yeah, we're covering MC5 tonight. These guys are uh, These guys are punk. They're punk. They're metal. They were controversial for their time, but highly influential for bands after them like you know and that's what we're trying to do is you know find the influence on the influence on the influence yep that chain of infinite influence and i think we followed it pretty well so far like you know it splits every now and then like we said the you know we got the really far west coast influence with the sonics last time this is a this is a whole new thing like you can even feel like early kiss in there like a lot of those early oh yeah they definitely knew how to throw on a show and just a lot Without of the Motor like, City style. Yeah. Like, there's a certain Motor City style where, like, it's hard to really identify. It's almost like a like an arena style. You know right. what I mean? Like arena rock. Yeah. Like, just think of the Motor City Mad Men. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then, you know. They just they knew how to put on a show. Like, that, that's what they did. They went up and they played as hard as they could. Yeah, exactly. And there's always, like, it's almost hard to lock down, but there's always this theme of, like the musicians being more independent of the band and the rhythm. Like I always feel like Detroit bands, like the, the guitarist always has just so much freedom to do whatever he wants when he's doing his thing. And when drum solos happen, they're so isolated that the drum, the drummer just gets to do like the most crazy shit. Well, and if you listen to recordings from this area, especially like MC five and the stooges, you know, there's kind of a, a loudness to these recordings that just didn't exist. Yeah, it, it really does have that I want to fill up an arena kind of feel to it. Or I just want to crank my amp up to 11 and blast your face off. Yeah, piss my neighbors off. It's my piss my neighbors off vibe. Those are fun vibes. <laughs> well, and so like Pat said, we are covering MC5. We'll actually get some birthdays on this one. Are you excited, Pat? Yay, birthdays! Because they don't really like switch a bunch of band members. Nah. All right, hit me with some birthdays. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that was, but... That was my delicious birthdays um, noise. Yeah, now I don't really want to hit you with delicious birthdays. <laughs> it's like my Hannibal Lecter noise. I ate her flesh. Give <laughs> <your> birthday. <laughs> This is a good start. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're only a few minutes in, and I'm already a Hannibal Lecter in this <laughs> podcast. So. Well, and so the principal members of the MC5 would be vocalist Rob Tierner, lead guitarist Wayne Kramer, rhythm guitarist Fred Sonic Smith, drummer Dean Thompson, and the bassist Michael Davis. I didn't hear any birthdays. Wow. You are so impatient. I was literally about to start the birthdays. Oh, okay. Well, lay, lay them on me, daddy-o. And Rob Tierner would be born Robert W. Derminer on December 12th, 1944. Born somewhere in the Michigan area. Couldn't find all the information on that one about him, but he was definitely born in the area. And he would adopt the surname Tierner as a tribute to jazz pianist McCoy Tierner. Oh, huh, that's really cool. Wayne Kramer would be born April 30th, 
1948 in Detroit. In Detroit. In Detroit. And then we got Frederick Dewey Smith, born August 14th, 1948 in West Virginia. All right. Better known as Fred Sonic Smith. Oh, yeah. Fred Sonic Smith. Or maybe he was just called Sonic Smith. I mean, how cool would that name be? That's a that's a really good name, but it also sounds like a comic book character who like <laughs> crafts like Sonic, yeah, <laughs> Sonic stuff. The he- Sonic the Hedgehog, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then we got Dennis Thompson, born Dennis to meet to Mitch to Mitch T O M I C H, and he was born September seventh, nineteen forty eight. He was given the nickname Machine Gun because of his assault style of fast, hard-hitting drumming that sonically resembles the sound of a Thompson machine gun. Oh, it's so cool and righteous. And then we got Michael Davis, born June 5th, 1948, in Detroit, the bass player. (laughs) The bass player, in quotation marks, (laughs) underlined, italicized. And... Even though I mentioned these names, like some of these weren't the original original, but none of the other members really like made a sting about anything and they weren't worth mentioning in this timeline, right? Oh, so there was there was a few like original members who phased yeah, out. Yeah, they, they went through some phases, but the M- MC5. That's these five guys. Yeah. All right. You know, they weren't considered the innovative bad boys. They weren't considered the innovative bad boys they would become. This band would be formed in the winter of 1964 from the ashes of Smith and Kramer's junior high rhythm and blues band, The Bounty Hunters. Oh, shit. <laughs> the Bounty Hunters. That's actually a pretty sweet name, yeah, honestly. I mean, that is, it is very edgy, but it also has a very cool uh, name. What year is this? 1964. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's that's really early for a name that edgy. So I think it actually gets extra points <laughs> for being in the early 60s. Well, I'm glad they went with MC5 instead of Motor City 5 because MC5 sounds edgier. Yeah, no, exactly. The Motor City 5 kind of sounds like a, like a Western that also has muscle cars in it. I don't know. And so they formed in Lincoln Park, Michigan, like I said, in the winter. The members were still in high school, but they would appear at local parties and teen hangouts, and they would be clad in matching stage uniforms. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not very punk. The addicts might have a different opinion of that. <laughs> and, you know, they were kind of just like a basic rock and roll outfit, mainly doing covers of other material, you know, just trying to play live. Yeah. But they would quickly earn a reputation with concert promoters, though. For showing up late, if at all, and playing too loudly, <laughs> and, and often not playing long enough to satisfy concert goers. <laughs> so they just came out, came in late with a short, too short a set and played too loud? Yep. And I took this straight from the article I read. Not yet quite bad. The MC5 were at this point merely irresponsible. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. See, I'm glad we were never like that. We were always at least a step above that. Right? At least we showed up for the gigs. Yeah, we showed up. We may have been drunk, but we had a long set. Yeah, we showed up early to get drunk. (laughs) Yeah, we showed up early, got hammered, and had an extra long set. You had to, like, kind of politely usher us off the stage at the end of the set. You guys are done. Yeah, 45 minutes have passed, guys. You need to be done. (laughs) Whether they wanted us to play that long or not. Yeah. Well, because it was always a 45-minute or hour-and-a-half set. That was, like, the, the general... Or we do those open mics where they just go, okay, you guys play last because we know you guys are going to play for a while. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> open mics, we got away with a lot more because we played the same ones a lot. So, And so it was Rob who would actually name them MC5 or Motor City 5 because, you know, it would emulate what Detroit was famous for, you know, the car industry. And also, unfortunately, at the time, the simmering racial tensions. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, they very much in in a few of the recordings we listened to had like a, I don't know, like a, know, like a cheering humanity on theme. Like between songs, they were like, "Yeah, everybody doing good." Like, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, they they definitely had. I mean, this was the late '60s. You know, they were definitely taking some acid. <laughs> you know, there's some I, there were some ideas getting out there. You know, yeah, it, there were there was clearly a whole lot of ideas being explored where. The Sonics, they just wanted to play loud music. 
These guys wanted to be revolutionary, honestly. Hell yeah. And if you guys missed last week's episode of the Sonics, they kind of this these episodes kind of do parallel each other in a way. Yeah, a lot. Like obviously the Sonics were a few years before this, but music in the 60s was happening so fast, you know. Yeah. You turn your head and there's a new style of band coming out. Yeah, and these two bands kind of sticking together. If you stick these two bands together, they make a lot of the influences of a lot of the punk music. Yeah, the, between the Sonics last week that we did and MC5, like you're hard pressed to find a punk band who wasn't influenced by at least one of these bands. Yeah, or or influenced by a band that was influenced by them. It depends on how yeah, many exactly. years you, you give it breadth. But you know, even if you're only a modern punk kid, before you know it, somebody who you're influenced by was influenced by the fucking Sonics. And you know, even though they were unreliable, they were still able to get gigs and stuff like that. But you know. Motown was happening at the time. Oh, good old Motown. And, you know, they put Detroit on the map, but they created kind of a vacuum for any other type of music, you know, rock and roll included in that. Yeah, it made it, made it a lot harder to play it in that city. Yeah. And to quote Rob on this predicament, he would say, to be a white singer in Detroit at the time, you simply were the wrong man for the job. <laughs> <laughs> I did not feel comfortable as a performer until I could pull off James Brown material without a flaw. Holy shit. That's, that's, that is rough. Like uh, we've talked about uh, that racism in reverse a few times. We've never really talked about like, you know, where, where it truly does affect people in the opposite way. And, you know, obviously let's, let's not try and compare wounds in like a racism war. Cause that doesn't help anybody, but no, we, but, we haven't had a situation where it's been like, Nope, sorry, cracker. You too fucking white. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> out of, and that's the thing though. Motown like took over the country and that was, you know, Detroit sound. Yeah. Exactly. While, while you have all these rock bands going, uh, no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because because Detroit has a legitimately really good rock scene and metal scene for the next twenty years straight from here, probably longer. If I'm being honest, uh, at least till everybody moved out of that state. <laughs> yeah, until the car industry crashed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and you know the MC5 would end up finding a fan of sorts, a guy named John Sinclair, and he was kind of witnessing their state of affairs. In fact, one time the band's equipment was being repossessed due to non-payment, and he offered his services as a manager. Now, who is John Sinclair, you may ask? Well, yeah, who who is this bro? He was born October 2nd, 1941 in Flint, Michigan. Hell yeah, more birthdays. <laughs> where he would discover the rhythm and blues on the radio as a grade schooler, right? Right. He'd graduate high school. He'd attend Albion College, University of Michigan in Flint. And went to graduate at Wayne State University in Detroit for an M.A. in American Literature. He did his graduate thesis on William S. Burroughs' Naked Lunch. <laughs> and he did this all before dropping out in 1965. Oh, shit. But throughout college, he would become enamored with jazz, embracing not only bebop, but also the burgeoning avant-garde. Oh, avant-garde. And... Sparked by his love of music, because obviously he was listening to, you know, musicians not of the same race as him, right? Yeah. He started taking notice of the surrounding political culture that formed. He went and saw Malcolm X speak and sided with the emerging anti-war movement and then started getting into the beatnik lifestyle. Oh, yes. We've talked about beatniks a couple times, and honestly, we're going to get a lot more into it as the season goes by, but beatniks are fucking awesome. Well, beatniks were influential on all the hippies in this era. Yeah, because they're, and it's not just music that they influence. They influence a whole lot of poetry and written literature. And, and lifestyle. Like, yeah, lifestyle stuff. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, giving you a little brief overview of who John Sinclair was, he'd start managing the MC5. And of course, around this time, the Detroit riots happen. Oh, shit. This is actually fucking huge riots. Yeah. Dude. Well, and. I'll give you a little brief history on the Detroit riots. They were also known as the 12th Street Riots. It was the bloodiest incident in the quote-unquote long hot summer of 1967, composed mainly of confrontations between black residents and the Detroit police. It began in the early morning hours of Sunday, July 23, 1967 in Detroit, Michigan. 
By the time the bloodshed, burning, and looting ended after five days, 43 people were dead, 342 injured, nearly 1,400 buildings had been burned, and some 7,000 National Guard and U.S. Army troops had been called into service. Holy fuck, dude. Yeah, we could do an entire episode just on this. Oh, wow. But this isn't, dude, check out this American history. Dude, sometimes I wish it was, but God, that shit's crazy. Yeah, dude, like... You think the riots this year were bad? Think about that, dude. Forty-three people were dead in five days. Yeah, I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna try and make any like comparisons to to local or or modern politics. I don't think that's a, that's a fair comparison for either side. You know what I mean? Every every strife is unique, and it's not fair to compare them. But that's that's some shit right there. Yeah, there was some anger behind that one for sure. But like I said, I don't want to get too into it because this is a dude. Check out this history. And so getting back to MC5, along with his managerial approach, Sinclair would also start instilling the band with his political beliefs, which, you know, lean towards socialism. Oh, not the not the dreaded socialism. Don't do good things for people, bro. That makes you a commie. <laughs> political stances aside, I mean, this was definitely a big fucking deal back in that day. You know, I mean, to like start singing about socialism and stuff like that, yeah, well, that yeah. was... It, it well, it had been a continued issue because we had, we'd already talked about Woody Guthrie. Woody Guthrie was oh, yeah. all, was was accused him of and all a, his buddies yeah. were fucking blacklisted for years. Yeah, for being socialists because uh, yeah, for whatever uh, their support of the union is what their their socialism. But like, I don't know. It seems like every time that like uh, like national support comes up, that immediately everyone's like socialist commie. <laughs> You know, political ideas aside, there should be nothing wrong with this. this is, we live in America. Don't we have free speech? Yeah. Like, that's, like, isn't that like the tenet of it? Doesn't matter how piss poor you think the idea is. It, it, like, I mean, fuck, dude. I just, why, why would you get so upset about that? I don't fucking get it. Uh, we should probably move on before we continue to talk <laughs> yeah. about the social economical <laughs> situation. Today but. in Pat and Ian's political rant. Yeah, do not. <laughs> On this portion of where Pat and Ian do not talk about the episode at all, yet talk about some random shit instead. But politics really are an important thing to talk about, especially with MC5's first album, which we'll get to. But, you know, I mean, with everything going on at the time, I think America needed kind of a band like this, you know? Yeah. But Sinclair viewed MC5 as a tool for promotion of an ideology that he and his friends started to develop. And so they were huge supporters of the Black Panthers. <laughs> yeah. And so they ended up making their own movement called the White Panthers. Oh. Have oh, you, guys. Do you know who the White Panthers are? No, I do not. Okay. Okay. So the White Panthers were an anti-racist political collective founded in 1968 by Pun, Plamondo, Lenny Sinclair, and John Sinclair. And... This was started as a response to an interview where Huey P. Mutant, the co-founder of the Black Panther Party, asked what white people could do to support the Black Panthers. And so this was kind of their answer to that, right? Yeah. And, you know, I get it. The White Panther sounds like... You know, it sounds like a fucking terrible thing. It does. I it, mean, sounds, I, it sounds like a white supremacist group. I immediately didn't like it when you said it. Yeah. Like, <laughs> but... Whenever claims were made that they were a white supremacist group, Sinclair would just go quite the contrary. They even had a 10-point plan. You want to hear it? Oh, yeah, of course. Why not? So are we talking about the White Panthers here? Yeah, the White Panthers. Okay. Number one, full endorsement and support of Black Panthers Party 10-point program. Number two, total assault on culture by any means necessary, including rock and roll, dope, and fucking in the streets. <laughs> Yes. Okay, I'm already in. You're going to like this yeah, one. Give me a white gray, man. <laughs> Number three, free exchange of energies and materials. We demand the end of money. Oh, shit. <laughs> Number four, and you're going to like this one. Free food, clothes, housing, dope, music, bodies. Not sure what that's supposed to mean. Medical care. Everything free for everybody. Free bodies? I guess. I, I'm not sure why that one was in there. Whoa, that sounds nefarious. <laughs> but anyways, uh, <laughs> moving on. Number five, free access to information media. Free the technology from the greed cops. 
<laughs> the Green Cops. The Green Cops. I, I like the Green Cops. I think that's a good band name. <laughs> that is a great band name, actually. Number six, free time and space for all humans. Dissolve all unnatural boundaries. <laughs> <laughs> Number seven, free all schools and all structures from corporate rule. Oh, shit. Turn the buildings over to the people at once. At once. At once. You must do it now. These are some extreme <laughs> tenants. Yeah. Number eight. Free all prisoners everywhere. They are our brothers. <laughs> all of them? All of them. <laughs> Even like the Hannibal Lecter dudes? <laughs> all serial killers. They're our brothers, Pat. Uh, the, There's no reason for them to be in jail. Wait, hold on. Is Manson in jail at this point? No, it hadn't happened. Okay, so August 8th, 1969 was the Tate murders. Yeah. So it was just before this. Oh, okay. So so Manson wasn't quite in jail yet. But either way, what the fuck? Don't don't free all the prisoners. That's not a, <laughs> that's not a good manifesto, guys. Number nine, free all soldiers at once. No more constrict. No more conscripted armies. God, that was hard to say. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, conscripted armies are typically not the best, anyways. But I mean, you know. You should just be able to look at, like, the general output of conscripted armies in history <laughs> well, and know you don't need to make them because they suck on general principle because people are like, I don't want to be here. <laughs> well, don't worry. You got all the serial killers out there to guard everybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Manson will take care of us. And number 10, my favorite. This is definitely my favorite. Free people from their leaders. Leaders suck. <laughs> all power to all people. Freedom means free everyone. <laughs> leaders suck. Leaders suck. That was actually in there. That's, like, that's one of their rules. Yeah. Leaders suck. Pa parents are bad. <laughs> oh, shit, dude. I kind of wish they were racist now. This is a little bit worse. <laughs> I, oh, man. I know we haven't talked about any music hardly yet, but I had to throw that in there because when I saw some of these, I was like, wow, yeah, that's... That, that went real extreme real quick. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my fucking Lord. Oh. Uh... <laughs> All right, man, we're nearing a half hour into this episode. We haven't even talked about their first album. I know, but this was important. It really you, was. You, it you, was. You, we really had to build the foundation. Yeah, my face and my stomach hurts. I'm glad that we <laughs> talked about this. Well, and to quote Sinclair about his life with MC5, he would say, we were totally committed to carrying out our program. We breathed revolution. We were LSD-driven total maniacs in the universe. We would do anything we could to drive people out of their heads and into their bodies. Rock and roll was the spearhead of our attack because it was so effective and so much fun. Oh, yeah. Out of their heads and into their bodies. That's a that's kind of profound. I, I dig that a little bit. And so, you know, under Sinclair's guidance, the MC5, you know, was on a more professional path, but club owners still didn't like him. Of course not. One concert at Detroit's Grand Ballroom, the five burned an American flag on stage and raised in its place a banner with the word freak emblazoned on it. <laughs> That's pretty edgy. <laughs> at the end of the show, a new fan climbed on stage and began to meditate. Ooh, yeah. The club owner, Gabe Glantz, was not amused. Sinclair would elaborate on the shows, <laughs> saying... Glantz started ranting at Tierner and me about committing crimes and obscenity and is this what you think of your country? Threatening us with eternal expulsion from the Grand. Oh, my God. <laughs> they were, in fact, temporarily banned from the venue, but it didn't stick because they were drawing so many fans, you know. He, yeah, suddenly money all of a sudden yeah. really matters. Oh, <laughs> what? You're decent. I don't like what you stand for. You're out. Oh, shit. Oh. They can bring fans in. Yeah, the money that they brought in was really good. And suddenly, I'm more understanding. In August of 1968, MC5 were invited to perform at the Youth International Party's Festival of Life in Chicago's Lincoln Park. And although not officially labeled as a protest of the Democratic National Convention, 
The festival was mounted simultaneously with the convention. Sinclair would say, It was a sharp contrast to the way of death epitomized by the Democratic Death Convention. <laughs> the Democratic Death Convention. Uh, that is so edgy. That sounds <laughs> like some shit a 12-year-old would say. <laughs> you know, back then, though, that was probably pretty fucking edgy. Though. Yeah, I think that... There, it <laughs> That's just so fucking funny. Like, Jesus, man. And MC5 would appear in a festival that helped spark the 1968 riot. <laughs> to quote michael davis the bass player about this he would say we were doing the show and everything was going okay when all of a sudden from over the hill came a huge line of policemen in riot gear charging towards the crowd (laughs) (laughs) we packed up our gear as fast as we could and barely made it out before complete chaos ensued (laughs) (laughs) can you imagine playing and you just see this line of basically fucking like spartan cops coming over the hill that's kind of really badass And so it was the riots, and some of the members would end up having some political reservations about it that would start to get on the nerves of some of the band between them and Sinclair, right? Yeah. Rob would say, I invested a lot of trust in Sinclair, and he just kept bleeding money for us. We never knew where the money was going. Sinclair's politics were so out to lunch, but we were the ones getting our heads busted open on stage every night. And he was the one getting the money. Oh, wow. So it, he definitely kind of used them for his own nefarious purposes. That's, that's for sure. That's fucked up. I dude. mean, really, from the the research I did, it looked like he kind of funneled that money into the White Panther Party. Like, yeah, they would play a lot of shows at like White Panther, like own like clubs. And yeah, so they probably just kept the door money. and yeah, all that shit. They that's were like fucked. house favorites. So, you know, I mean, that's really fucked up. Yeah. At least for the rest of the band members, that is really fucked up. And, you know, while all this kind of stuff is going on, they would release two singles across the span of time. I can only give you everything. And on the flip side, one of the guys and the other one looking at you, which is actually a song that would be released on a later album. But I prefer this one. Yeah. And the flip side, Borderline, which would actually be another song released on their first album. And I prefer their their first. Late. Yeah. Their later version or the first version? Their later version. Oh, yeah. And these would be released through Trans Love Energies on AMG and A Square, respectively. So Trans Love Energies was kind of the recording company, so to speak, for the White Panthers. Oh, I see. Trans Love Energies. It's a weird fucking naming convention. <laughs> Jesus, guys. Well, why don't we do our first dude check out this song about fucking time, right? Yeah. Are we getting the first album yet? No, we're not even at the first album. These are demos. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> well, 45s. I can give you everything, one of the guys, and looking at you. Oh, those, sound, those are actually really good songs. Yeah. We, we listened to two out of three of those jams, and they were super good. If you uh, look up the band The Damned, a punk band from the 70s, they would actually do a cover of Looking At You, and I actually think their cover version's better. Like, they do a fucking spectacular version of it the damned are just really fun to listen to though yeah they've got a couple of super solid albums if you're into punk and so repeated pressings of these 45s and their reputation for their live shows honestly would convince electro records to sign them and so in 1968 they signed the fucking dotted line on a record contract oh hell yeah but mc5 They didn't think that their sound would be best served in the cold confinement of a recording studio. (laughs) (laughs) And as guitarist Wayne Kramer would explain, playing live was what we did best. Most bands did three albums, then a live album. So we thought we'd be revolutionary and break out with a live album first. This also worked better for the label. MC5 didn't know how to work in the studio. So the studio record could have cost Electra a fortune and been a lengthy, grueling process. But yeah, they just released it at the live album first, and then they they were already like significant live players. At that oh point. Yeah. yeah, by that so. point, like they were known for their live shows. So yeah, and that's how we get kick out the jams, right? Well, why don't we get to that, you son of a bitch, ruining things for me? Always. And so the album "Kick Out the Jams" was recorded live at Detroit's Grand Ballroom across two nights 
on October 30th and 31st in 1968. And they got some jams on this album. <laughs> oh, they do have some jams on this album. This album, when released, would be called A Quasi-Political Holocaust of White Noise and Skin Deep Coltrane. <laughs> <laughs> And this was meant as a compliment, <laughs> but Rolling Stone would compare the release unfavorable to the San Francisco band Blue Cheer, which is a band I really think we should do. Yeah, put them in the beep boop. Boop 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 boop. And honestly, a lot of the criticism for this album would be because it was a live album and it was super raw and you know it didn't exactly have what you would call great production values, right? Yeah. But it would have like songs like Come Together. Rocket Reducer number 62, Motor City is Burning, Starship, Ramblin' Rose. But what the song really became known for was its second track. And at the beginning, the lead singer says, Kick out the jams, motherfuckers! (laughs) 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 And and yes, they they do bleep that out on the... uh, the There there are some edited versions out here. Actually... Electra would issue it uncensored, but this would also be like the first album to have the word fuck on it. Oh, wow. <laughs> so they were they were pushing the boundaries no matter what. Yeah. They would actually end up replacing it with some versions of it with kick out the jams brothers and sisters. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how they did that back then, but that's uh, some pretty sweet. Uh, kick out the jams brothers and sisters. <laughs> kick out the jams brothers and sisters. <laughs> Beep, boop, boop. <laughs> and so now we're hitting our stride here another dude check out this song holy shit two in a row two in a row <laughs> a well after a half hour into the episode <laughs> come together rocket reducer motor city is burning rambling rose and of course kick out the jams kick, kick, kick out the jams and if you guys don't know the song one you should listen to it but I had no idea what the song was before today. Don't feel bad if you don't know this song. <laughs> really? Yeah, no, I've 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 heard MC5's name a whole bunch of times, but I've never actually listened to any of their music were before you, today. Were you more familiar with the uh, Presidents of the United States of America's version? Well, of course I was. Duh. <laughs> and see, that version is what led me to discover MC5. Hell yeah. And so, of course, MC5 was dropped by Electra. <laughs> <laughs> well we're done with you guys you guys suck (laughs) that album is not so well i mean honestly in a way kind of look at it from their view because it there's nothing on this album that they can put on the radio it's a fucking live album yeah exactly (laughs) i mean it's not a good idea to do a live album your first album no matter how bad you are not this was definitely revolutionary though i don't I don't know of one other band who's ever done their first album as a live album, though. Because it was a stupid idea. I mean, it's a great album, though. You it guys got to fucking it listen is. to it. It is a really Kick great out, album. Kick Out the Jams is so good. Yeah. And Sinclair would end up getting busted for possession of marijuana. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> and so the band was left without a manager and without a contract. <laughs> That's fucking amazing. Oh, your manager gets busted for weed. Well, no more manager, no more contract. You yeah, suck. he would actually end up spending like two years in jail for it. Of course he would, because this is the era where you get fucked over for that shit. At least it's not Texas. And oh, my God. <laughs> where you have to go to an insane asylum to, <laughs> to get out of doing 20 years for a fucking joint. Yep. But they would end up eventually signing with Atlantic Records where producer John Landu was installed at the helm of their second album, Back in the USA. Back in the USA. It's not that that album. (laughs) (laughs) No. And, you know, Sinclair was out of the picture, and there was almost no political stance on this album. It was super stripped down, like super crisp, super clean, no feedback, almost no distortion. (laughs) <laughs> so they just pretty much gutted the style of the band yeah <laughs> in the second album in the second album they were fucking oh, just wow. gutted that's brutal and, well and here's the thing they'd have like songs like teenage lust you know call me animal the american ruse which is probably their only political song on the album yeah 
they'd have like high school. <laughs> they'd have a semi ballad called "Let Me Try," "Shaking the Street," and then they would do like a cover of "Tutti Fru- uh, Little Richard's Tutti Fruity" and Chuck <laughs> Perry's "Back in the USA." What the fuck? Yeah. So, I mean, some of these songs would actually go on to like influence some punk bands. You know, maybe more of the the popular style, but. There were a couple of gems on this, and so we're going to do check out these songs yeah, right now. Yeah, this is so off the wall, but hit me with it. Call Me Animal and The American Ruse. That's... <laughs> yeah, it's... They literally got fucked. Like, it, it was just like, you guys were too wild on your first one, so we're yeah, going to so we're we're tame you up. Yeah, we're going to corporately castrate you real quick, bro. Hope you like it. If this boy goes off to prison, the rest of you get beaten. And so, obviously, like... People were fans of the first album. Duh. Not fans of the second one. Duh. This album, I don't think I mentioned it, was released in 1970. But then they would, you know, be pushed to go back into the studio for a third album, right? Yeah. And this album, High Time, would attempt to combine the energy of Kick Out the Jams, but with a little bit more of the control of Back in the USA. Not quite the same amount. Oh, my God. And how'd it turn out? Well... This was the first time the MC5 credited the songs individually, not as a collective group. And if you look at the songwriting credits, guitarist Fred Sonic Smith would write half the album. (laughs) (laughs) Wayne Kramer would write a couple, and Rob Tierner and Dennis Thompson would write one apiece. And this album would have songs like Sister Anne, Baby Won't Ya, Miss X, Gotta Keep Moving. And when it was released in 1971... It was released to critical acclaim. This actually is a pretty damn good album, but I think because of what happened with their first one, this was their worst-selling album. Yeah. And, I mean, which is a shame because this is actually a very listenable album. It's it's wild. Like, the songs are long, but it's wild. It's, yeah. you know, they fucking drive. They groove, and it's a fucking shame, honestly. Yeah. And let's get to our dude check out the song. What yeah, do you say? Well, let's do it. Let's hit it me with it. We got Sister Ann, Baby Won't You, Gotta Keep Moving. Oh, uh-huh, yeah, which are all really solid jams. Honestly, Sister Ann's the perfect song to open this album up with, though. It's like, I want to say this one's seven minutes long, and it's just it just flies through, and you're like, song's over already? And then you're like, oh, seven minutes long? What the <laughs> hell? Where'd those seven minutes go? But, of course, you know, too little too late at this point. I think it was really that second album that really screwed him. And they would break up in 1972. Oh, yeah. And then they're kind of done at that point, huh? Done. Dunzo. Well, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. The way they lived was very... Uh, it was... Crash. It, you yeah, know? It, it, it was super fast. Yeah, exactly. And so was their time to shine. Yeah, there we go, though. But they really do, like, lay a lot of inspiration for bands for fucking decades. Yeah, well, and we'll get to that, too. Fred Sonic Smith, at the age of 31, he would end up marrying and raising a family with poet and rock musician Patti Smith. Oh, shit. Yeah. Hell yeah. So he Good would... Patti Smith. Yeah. and We haven't talked about her in a while. I know, but we, we definitely probably should put her in the beat boop machine, too. Oh, yeah. Boop, 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 boop. You know, they would collaborate on music together and raise their kids, and, you know, he would join, you know, various other projects, and you just stay busy playing music and spreading his message, right? Yep, that's that's the way to do it. The bass player Davis would spend some time in Kentucky's Lexington Federal Prison on drug charges from 75 to 76. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, still play music and stuff, but yeah, that was notable. Probably getting busted for weed. <laughs> Probably. And the drummer Thompson, you know, would just join a ton of different bands. Like, he would join a a band called The New Order, an Australian group called New Race, Motor City Bad Boys, The Secrets. You know, I just he pretty <laughs> much just played music for the rest of his life, honestly. Yeah, so he pretty much followed his passion, which is which is cool. That's yeah. what that's what you're supposed to do. <laughs> Wayne Kramer, the lead guitar player in 1975, he would have a reunion with his bass player because he got caught selling cocaine to overco- undercover <laughs> federal agents. <laughs> he went to prison for over two years in the Lexington Federal Prison. <laughs> and he'd be, he'd meet his bass player there? Yep. They, they, they'd they have a brief little meeting up there. Oh, that's so funny. 
He would end up meeting a jazz trumpeter there named Red Rodney, who played with Charlie Parker's quintet. Hell yeah. <laughs> so there you go. We got throwback to another episode. They would actually end up playing together in the institution's Sunday Chapel. Ooh. And Tierner, he'd end up, you know, starting a bunch of other bands. You know, he'd end up doing collaborations with Eddie and the Hot Rods. He'd do promotional tours for MC5 reissue vinyls. You know, start a new band in the States called the New MC5. And <laughs> the, like, the new MC5, really. Yeah, well, and then they would form into the Rob Tierner band. Just He would just tour and sell MC5 albums. You know, he'd do benefit LP for the Vietnam veterans, and, you know, and just do shit like that for the rest of his life. That's pretty cool, though. That's like at least keeping it active, you know? Yeah, well, you know... He's able to at least scrounge his way through a living with everything he did. Yeah, I mean, if, if you really love doing something, you got to do it regardless. So he showed that he truly loved doing it. On September 17th, 1991, Rob Tierner suffered a heart attack in the seat of his parked car close to Berkeley, Michigan. He was taken to Beaumont Hospital in Royal Oak, where he died, leaving his wife, Becky, and three children behind Aww. at the age of 47. Wow, that's early, man. Yeah. I mean, they lived a hard three years, too. It's, yeah. But, fuck, that's that's a young age to go. Yeah, that's that's just a little over a decade older than me, so. Right. And so the rest of the band would end up getting together as a four-piece and put on a live performance to celebrate the life of Rob Tierner in the State Theater in Detroit on February 22, 1992. Oh, that's cool. And they weren't even billed on it. You know, there was a rumor that they would be appearing, but nobody really knew about it. Like, it was a surprise. That's awesome. And I guess a bunch of celebrities showed up to try and catch a glimpse of them. They played about a 30-minute set, and apparently there are recordings from this, but they've never surfaced. Oh, that's so fucking cool. I love little lore pieces like that. And so on November 4th, 1994, Fred Sonic Smith would end up dying in St. Clair Shores, Michigan. He had been in poor health for years and would end up succumbing to heart failure at the age of 46. Aw, Sonic Smith, man. In 2003, the three surviving members of MC5, they ended up performing in the 100 Club in London with uh, Fred Sonic Smith temporarily being replaced by Nick Anderson of the Helicopters, spelled H-E-L-L-A copters. Helicopters. <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't know if you know that name, but... No, it, I've it, never it, heard it, that before, yeah, but that's it's awesome. Definitely goes back to kind of my punk roots there. Helicopters. <laughs> and then the vocals would be taken by various different musicians. Dave Vanian of The Damned, Lemmy of Motorhead. Oh, Lemmy? <laughs> Two more beat boot machines right there, Fuck man. Yeah, man. <laughs> Ian Asbury of The Cult. And some singer named Kate O'Brien. I don't know who she is, but... Oh, that's cool. But yeah, so they would kind of have this rotating cast of singers for this show. That's super fucking and awesome. And they'd have Lemmy on stage. Oh, <laughs> that, oh my God. That would be a really cool show to be and at. Lemmy's got a cool story. We definitely got to do... Yeah, yeah. I know how much you love Lemmy. We'll put him on the list. I love Lemmy and I love his mole. <laughs> <laughs> and... By about February 2005, they'd end up stabilizing a consistent lineup here, and they'd just start touring. You know, they'd have ver various members in it that come in and out, but, you know, it was stable. In they were actually touring again. They were actually touring again. In 2006, MC5 was voted into the Michigan Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and in May 2018... Wayne Kramer announced the MC50 tour to celebrate the 50th anniversary <laughs> of Kick Out the Jams. That's pretty awesome. And this would have people on it like Matt Cameron of Soundgarden, Brendan Canty of Fugazi. I don't know if you know who they are, but yeah, you know they're you know they'd have a uh, Faith No More bassist Billy Gold, Gould, Gold, some, Gould, I think. But yeah, you know some names there. That's some pretty big names. Yeah, and they continue to tour. Well. They don't continue to tour now. Fucking COVID. Yeah. <laughs> but, you but know. Just like just like what we talked about last year, or last week. Yeah, uh, exactly. There, last there's, year. There's, <laughs> holy shit. It feels like a year. <laughs> the whole week has passed. I know. But, no, like, just like we talked about last year, like, the the Sonics are still active and playing today if you, if well, once all this uh, plague stuff clears up. Yeah, like, they're. 
Maybe we can get a Sonics MC5 tour. That oh, would be cool. Oh, shit. <laughs> it's something we can actually legitimately hope for. Cross your fingers, ladies and gentlemen. 2021, <laughs> Sonics and <laughs> yeah, Sonics and MC- MC5. Oh, that'd be so good. I would love that shit. Oh, just some old man rocking as hard as they could. That'd Hell be sweet. Yeah. That would be so good. But, yeah, I mean, you know, I don't really have any more than that. It's just uh, kind of like last week where it was, they were just like this flash in the pan and all of a sudden they were over. Yep, but then sometime in the 2000s, they decided they could do it again and did it again. That was the time. Hell yeah. I mean, you know, that's just the way it goes, though. If, you, if you're if you popular for, you know, a few years here and there, you're going to get a resurgence if you're, like, uh, if you're patient and you had enough proper recordings. But I think it's time for last thoughts. What do you say? All right, sure. You, you go ahead and go first. About fucking time. I know. I keep stealing it. <laughs> I know. I'm yeah. scared that you're going to do mine, and then I'm going to have to ad lib. <laughs> you mean like I usually got to do? Yes, exactly. <laughs> so I honestly don't have a whole lot. Just, you know, like between MC5 and the Sonics, they influenced like every band I fucking listened to as a kid. Just to re-listen to these and like actually get a full story behind it. Like I didn't know the whole story with them and the White Panther movement. Like I knew about this just, through the years, somehow I picked up on it, but like how politically charged they were and with everything that was going on, you know, their music makes a whole lot of sense. You know, it was especially their first album. It was just like this blast of anger that came out. That was just like the shit that's going on is not right. Yeah. And it was really like that true start of it all where this high energy punk rock came from where it's just like things that are going on are not fucking right and they need to change and really like we talk about the sonics with being influential but this band was influential in the political way where they're like fuck no we're not gonna take this shit yeah you know and that whole attitude that that bled into the whole punk scene between the 70s and 80s this is where it came from yeah this This is is where that bad boy like fuck you cops between this and last week, that is the combination of the origin. Right? Yeah, right, right At least here. for the American portions. There are some British inspirations that we haven't gotten to yet. but For the most part, we do actually have a punk band coming up. But, yep. yeah, I mean, for the whole, like, fuck you attitude and we're going to play loud and we're going to play music you don't like, it's these last two weeks that you really need to listen to Hell for yeah. the inspiration. And it's awesome. It, it really has been so much fun. And so, I mean, I guess I guess we can kick into my last thoughts here. I'm not going to go anything too crazy. I, I, I think what I said last week can kind of just be copied and pasted here, so uh, I'm not going to do that. But what I'm going to say is uh, I really do appreciate these, these proto-punk bands for what they were trying to do, and they were definitely, like, feeling around in the dark for a sound that they didn't know they wanted but was there. And, well, like, they didn't even... They, they searched around for a sound that wasn't even wanted at the time yeah like they were way more appreciated years after they were you know totally broken up yeah and and in hindsight i love the fact that you can look back and see like how hard they were struggling for that sound that we now just know is oh punk rock like yeah of course that's what it was like how did you not know that that's what it was supposed to sound like bro like but the reality is these bands had to go out there and really put themselves out there to generate the origins of these uh genres yeah you really needed some martyrs and and uh, yeah, it, martyrs is a good is a good way to put it. And if we're, if you're really thinking about it, like going out there and you see some bands that are doing some shit that is so weird that you just can't get into it, maybe don't crucify them as martyrs. Maybe just like you don't have to like everything you see, but maybe not everything. Maybe everything you don't like doesn't have to be evil. You know what I right. mean? Like you don't necessarily have to hate something because you don't personally like it. Maybe we need to be more accepting of different like inputs in art because it shows right here something that was not desired and not wanted really in almost any way turns out to be something that is a linchpin for everything. Well, right, and their contemporaries, the Stooges, which we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, you know, they would continually go on stage and get booed, and it's like they created this music that was not appreciated in their time, but years later everybody was like oh i fucking get it and that's one of the things like if you have a sound that is like i don't want to say like ahead of its time or anything like but if your sound is like you know something new and it's not really catching on right away 
but you honestly believe that it's it's something worth you know diving into you may have something that won't be appreciated in its time of creation and you know what that might be okay like we mentioned last week, hopefully you don't got to wait 30 years before the appreciation comes back around. Yeah, but- and, and hopefully you don't have to have riot cops come beat up your uh, <laughs> beat up your riot or your, your, your mosh pit. I just, when I read that comment, I immediately just saw like this image of those old like historic videos where you see the battle lines getting drawn <laughs> and then them pack slowly packing up their gear in the back going yeah, yeah. okay what we're, the we're, fuck? we're gonna go we're gonna go i don't really have the money to replace this instrument <laughs> yeah right <laughs> well clearly they didn't because their manager really helped them out with the money oh yeah well their manager in quotation marks and actually that's another thing we should probably mention is this is the second time this season where we've mentioned a band kind of getting, you know, boned by their manager, boned by their manager, yep. you know, in their manager's image of the band. Yeah. Maybe like don't think let, about to Rocky Erickson where his manager wanted the 13th floor elevators to be like the LSD revolutionaries and LSD was going to release everybody's minds and trip them all out. And then, you know, of course, Rocky Erickson ended up with schizophrenia Maybe do your own thing. Yeah. Maybe it's maybe don't probably, let... Maybe it's probably easier nowadays to do your own thing, for yeah. sure. No, for sure. And I mean, I know that society in general is less judgy, even though maybe in the last year we haven't been able to feel that way because we've had some, you know, some extreme global tension over a few things. But the reality is, overall, we're more understanding nowadays. So you probably don't catch it as much. But if you do catch yourself in a situation like that, learn from history. Learn from these point of views and, you know, try and just you know motor through yeah and if what your manager's doing makes you feel uncomfortable you are right to question what he's doing for the band yeah nobody's your daddy unless he's your daddy but if you want a daddy to tell you what good music is (laughs) yeah you should you know give us all the stars and all the social medias and all the podcast apps yep just wherever you are just just tell people that you like us uh even people you don't know walk up on the street and just tell them to listen to our podcast like scream it to their face really well don't scream it at them tell them nicely dude you gotta check out the song you you catch more bees with honey ian (laughs) either way uh as always uh good night and we fucking love you later